Over the coming weeks, Standpoints will be releasing several episodes in short order from a backlog of recordings we conducted during the pandemic. In March 2020, just as the burgeoning Standpoints podcast was preparing to begin its first recordings, COVID-19 transformed many workplaces around the world, including all academic campuses, into wholly remote operations. So, rather than lose the momentum we had built during pre-production, the Standpoints team chose to press on with the tools we had available to us at the time. We have since returned to studio production and greatly upgraded our remote production capabilities. Still, we did not wish to re-record the conversations we had during 2020 and 2021, not just because of the cost and time this would represent, but also because these recordings include voices and perspectives that are not replicable outside of the specific context of their emergence. What you will hear in these episodes are a lot of recorded Zoom meetings with a lot of Black women who were trapped in their homes, some with families and some in isolation. And this is in itself a valuable archive of the pandemic experience. As you listen to these episodes, we hope you will forgive the poor audio quality, but we also hope you will appreciate that what you are hearing is not merely a young podcast attempting to find its feet under difficult circumstances, but also one trying to stay connected, be in community, and be creative within the limitations of living through a global pandemic. Welcome to Standpoints, the podcast where we explore the Black experience. This is our space for living and loving Blackness. My name is Trisha Cadet. And I'm Andrea Baldwin. Joining us today, we have Janice Leonard, who is a mental health professional, specifically a licensed professional counselor an intern in the state of Texas. She's supervised by Brandy Smith and a sex therapy student with Sexual Health Alliance. Janice is from St. Lucia and is the mother of two lovely boys, one of which I almost stole, one I still need to steal, Janice. I'm just letting you know that. <laughs> and she's very passionate about women's mental and sexual health. And we also have joining us today, Leslie Tony, who is a second year doctoral student of women's and gender studies in the Department of Sociology at Virginia Tech. And Leslie also holds a master's in clinical psychology. And her current projects include research on sexual agency among Caribbean adolescents and young women and how systems of culture influence women's attitudes towards self-care and behavioral and identity shifts that occur when they engage in institutional power of their own well-being. Oh boy. So this is going to be a very interesting conversation today. So I wanted to start off. I know I didn't do um, full justice to your, your um, biographies and the scope of work that you both do. So I want to start with Janice. You know, Janice, can you tell us a little more about yourself and the work that you're doing? So I think you covered it pretty well. Um, the only thing I would have added was that I am a wife and, you know, I have two boys. So yes, I'm a mother. 
Um, I am also an ambassador with the American Sexual Health Association. Um, and thank you so much for creating this space for us, Trisha and Dr. Baldwin. Um, we certainly appreciate it. So good question. I have for a long time been fascinated by psychology and sexuality. And it seemed as if for most of my teenage and adult life that I somehow always conceptualized things from that angle. I was always intrigued by people's um, just psychological development and sexuality. And I'm that friend who always wants to talk about your sex life and figuring out what are you, what are you needing? Are you getting satisfied? You know, what could be different? Um, so these are things that just come to me naturally. And from a very early age, I would say, I, I believe I felt very comfortable in my sexuality, although I've gone through cycles of shame and acceptance, which I like to think I am there now. Um, yeah, so it took me a while to really connect the dots and find this path for myself. And I'm just really excited to, to be here. Um, but before I became a therapist, I was first a client. I remember struggling to find a therapist of color in my zip code at the time. And I made it, I, I made a commitment to, to change that. And, you know, I imagine there were people with struggles that I did. I came from being a single mother into a biracial marriage, um, being an immigrant. You know, there's so many issues that come up with just getting into marriage and preparing for, you know, for that union and having the tools to, to work through some of the issues that come up. So it has been very beneficial to me to have therapy as a space that I can go to. And I also create that space for many people uh, from ages five to 66. And I really love it. I love what I do. And I mean, I think that's beautiful work. And I think it's, it's um, so interesting, the panel that we have today with you and Leslie, because I feel like, um, there are differences in the work that you do and your focus areas, but there's also so much similarity. But I won't talk in that. I'll let Leslie um, go ahead and talk about her work that she has been doing before starting grad school and what she's doing now. Hi, it is a pleasure to be here with all of you. My name is Leslie Robertson Tony. Um, I worked for many years um, in public mental health predominantly, but also um, in mental health at the regional level. Um, I've had a number of years doing direct care, mostly with individuals living with severe mental illness. Um, at, but at that time, I always had an interest in uh, adolescence and early adulthood or young adulthood. Um, I find it to be clinically one of those ages or, or one of those developmental stages where you can really empower people to understand how they can cope and how they can name and identify uh, the trauma that they've experienced and traumatic systems in their lives, but they can also separate um, and gain a sense of agency. And, and so then the therapeutic process becomes about um, getting tools and understanding and healing, but also not giving people um, strict dichotomies of good or bad and finding ways to understand and accept the people maybe in your family of origin um, and make healthy choices. And 
sexuality has certainly been integral to that, particularly with uh, women that I've worked with, particularly young women. Um, for many years, I worked in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. So the Northern Virginia area is very diverse. And in Alexandria, um, I think many of the clients who are there are either Latino or um, African-American. And then there's a really large and diverse immigrant population. And it's often that in these communities, people are not talking about sex and certainly not bringing it into the therapeutic space unless it is the subject of trauma. And then it's a very difficult conversation to have. However, we are sexual beings outside of traumatic experiences. And because our sexuality is integral to who we are, um, it is an there's an important connection with our intellectual selves, but more than that, with our emotional selves, with our decision-making, with our judgments. And so when you combine that with teaching young adults about how to be aware of what they're feeling and what they're thinking and how those things connect with the experiences that they have and how they behave and how people behave towards them, it, it's sort of like you're adding this essential part to everything else that you're teaching them in the therapeutic dynamic. Um, five years ago, I moved home to Trinidad. Um, my family is from Trinidad and I spent my childhood there. So I wanted to um, have an international experience. I had never worked there. And at that point, I began working with a lot of um, young people. Um, I began having a number of teenage girls as clients in the different practices that I worked in. I worked first for a large uh, state-owned oil company. And um, there, although what they provided was what was considered an employee assistance program, because of how mental health is set up in Trinidad and Tobago, it's largely privatized. And there isn't really, there's, there's limited um, therapeutic service in the public system. So you find that people do use employee assistance um, services for a, you know, a level of care that is not commonly used in the US, or at least in the US when you have decent health insurance. And so I got, I think a larger than normal number of adolescent um, clients, particularly girls, and then I, I left and I worked in um, the Middle East region and ended up working on um, life skills and uh, manuals that they were hoping to implement in training teachers and how to integrate foundational life skills um, lessons in school curricula. And that was about sexual health, but also general health. And because it's in the Middle East, they wanted to be very, very careful and conservative about how to navigate talking about those things. Um, and so having to think about all of the ways that you can talk about these things in therapeutic spaces, but then also how you can um, pitch that to adults who may not necessarily want to talk about it, that became important. And then when I returned to Trinidad, I ended up working with court referred youth. And there I was confronted continuously with a higher rate of uh, adolescent girls who were 
um, too, sadly, too often um, sexually abused. And what I had found in all of the years I worked in Trinidad is that adolescents may come to the therapeutic space with a trauma history, but they are also developing normally as adolescents. And adolescence is a time when interest in sexuality and an awareness of self occurs. And so we have to figure out ways to talk about how adolescents understand themselves and how they find agency in their sexuality outside of the trauma experience, because people exist outside of trauma. Um, and that is what has brought me to my doctoral studies today, because the work I'm doing is combining the experiences that I've had working in uh, the clinical sphere with all of the theoretical work done in women's and gender studies and in sociology to look at how people form ideas in society, about, and particularly in this case, how young women in Trinidad and Tobago form ideas about society. Because I see that you know there's constantly a tying in, looking at the structural, looking at the individual. And when therapists come into the therapeutic space, they are, they have to be aware of all the micro moments and all the macro moments, all the societal influences that shape their ideas about something like sexuality and then how they communicate those things. Um, and so that's you know what I've been doing. So um, I wanna follow up on a few things that both of you said, uh, Janice, you talked about being comfortable um, in your skin for the most part around sexuality from from very early age. And then Leslie, you you talk about um, trauma being kind of the first um, experience uh, for for adolescents um, and learning about their sexuality through trauma, um, particularly black and brown uh, young women. Um, and so my question as a follow-up to you is, if there is one thing that you wish, or it could be more than one thing, you wish that young girls, particularly Black young girls, knew about their sexuality in a younger year so that they could um, be more comfortable and they're not uh, experiencing sexuality through a trauma lens. And we could start with Janice. Yeah. So to start with that, I would say, and I like that Leslie brought up um, trauma. Um, that is, it is so important to acknowledge that that is sometimes the first place where we, we, we get that introduction to sexuality. But in that, there is a lot of shame that is tied in that. And I think it that's from our, the first message we received about our sexuality. So if you spend, if you spent a lot of time around children, you notice that between the ages of, let's say, um, 10 months to a year, they start exploring with their genitals. And it's, it's absolutely natural. They find their genitals, they start playing with it. And, and oftentimes, and I'm only speaking to the Caribbean community because that's where I am from, um, you would hear people say things like, don't touch it, or nasty, or, you know, this is not, it's not right. So you get, you're getting the message at that point as if, your body is not like there's something wrong about your body. This is the part of it that we don't talk about. Um, 
you know, and there is no correcting of that message. So often, so in therapy, we try to correct that. And some of the language we can use in those moments um, to start introducing that comfort level and that consent, because really it is consent that you're giving a child. Yes, you know, this is your penis or this is your vulva. It feels good to exploit your genitals, but it has to be done in private. You can do it on your alone time, in the bedroom, in the bathroom. Um, and I think that gives them permission, you know, and it removes that shame. So I think that is where we need to start with the messages. And of course, you know, with Leslie, I'm sure Leslie will go deeper into the trauma part because, yeah, that's that's another rabbit hole. Um, so I think it's correcting the language and calling it what it is. You know, oftentimes you hear, we don't call it, we call it something else, you know, and I'm sure each of you have, and I would love to hear, like, each of you have a name. That's confusing, you know, and I think that shame is in the name too. Why can't we call it what it is? It is what it is. That's, that's just what it is. So I think that's where that correction needs to happen and deconstructing those, those messages. And as people come into therapy, we do something called the inner child work where we help them reconnect with their younger selves, um, where they can correct that, those messages from an adult perspective. Um, so it's an intervention that we often use. Um, but I'll let Leslie talk a little more because I suspect um, she will go deeper into the trauma part and I don't want to override. No, but before Leslie speaks, I was just um, picking up on the idea of sex positive mm -hmm. parenting. And um, maybe you could touch on that, Leslie, that perspective. Well, that um, messaging from your perspective, you know, how do you see sex positive parenting or the lack of sex positive parenting impact, impacting um, young people based on the work that you have done and your experience with them? Sex, you said sex positive parenting? Could mm -hmm. you repeat it? Sex positive parenting, just based on what Janice said, you know, removing that, that language of shame and negativity when it comes to exploration mm -hmm. of... Um, okay, so of I think, so let me, I guess I should first um, answer Andrea's previous question. I think if there's one thing I could say to Black girls in the Caribbean, I would say that we're all sexual beings and our, sexually, our sexuality is an innate part of us and everybody's is different. And there's absolutely no shame in any aspect of your sexuality. And I think I would also say we live in a society where we've learned a lot of misinformation and that unlearning can always be powerful. Unlearning and learning new things with people you trust and giving yourself the opportunity to continue learning throughout your life is an approach that you can take with a number of things, including understanding your sexuality. Um, psychotherapists will often talk about how conditions occur on a spectrum, disorders occur on a spectrum, development 
occurs on a spectrum. Sexuality also occurs on a spectrum. There aren't really binaries. Um, we have people who are at different ends of the extremes on a number of different things. And that is true. Some people have high sex drive and some people have very low and people have in the middle. Some people are um, completely masculine and some people are completely feminine and people are all the way in the middle. These things all occur on a spectrum. There aren't binaries. And life informs a number of things about the human experience. And so it makes perfect sense that for some people, there are shifts or changes through their life. Um, and so that's the thing. I think that is my main message. That's the main message that I would say for this. The main message that I used very often working with um, adolescents, particularly girls, was always that your sexuality is, um, that anybody who has sex with you should be concerned, should have the utmost concern about your comfort and well-being. And I use that as a tool very often because we recognize a really high rate of predatory relationships and statutory rape situations where girls seemingly give assent to being in a, a, a sexual relationship with an adult man. This is a trend in the US as well. Um, there are data supporting the high number of adolescent pregnancies, teenage pregnancies with men who are adults, who are you know, 15 years older. And I think if we begin to push this idea to adolescents that anybody with whom you have sex has an interest in your well-being and your comfort, it begins to shift this idea that um, I should just, you know, lay back and take it. Even in, in seemingly good, quote unquote, good functional relationships. I think that notion is empowering because it gives you permission to say, no, I don't like this. Or no, I don't like that. And there's a prevailing consensus that one of the things that is attractive to predatory men, and it's typically men, the data, there are women, but the, the data support that is a majority of men, is that you can push around a young girl and if she's not sexually experienced and she's already not very um, aware of her own sense of self or, or self-esteem, she's unlikely to challenge your efficacy in bed. Um, so, so giving that idea that you can love yourself and your whole self and that it is okay to ask and demand something is an important message. But I wanted to say uh, beyond that, that although, so one of, one of the critiques that is common, and, it's, and that's where I'm coming from as well, is that sexuality in the Caribbean is only talked about in terms of sexual trauma. The, the other end of that is we either talk about sexual trauma or sex as problematic, teenage pregnancies, HIV, and, and sexual violence. And the other alternative is we say nothing. And there are a number of um, there are a number of areas in 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 black feminist theory, in transnational feminist theory, where they talk about how women, not just in the Caribbean, but also black women in the United States, and I would imagine that any other place where black women, like Britain and Canada, where black women are a marginalized group, where what we do is shut down. 
we have what is known as a culture of dissemblance. And there are a number of people who talk about this. Really good um, um, person on it that Andrea exposed me to is uh, Daniel Clark Hine. And it's the, it's the, what is the, it's the name of it? The Rape and the Inner Lives of Black Women. And it's the idea that we have shut down and silenced ourselves. But with the silencing, and a number of people talk about that as well, with the silencing, we just don't talk about anything at all. And we have to talk. Because when you talk, when we talk about other things, you know, where you get your hair? Who did your hair? That's how we learn information. That's how you learn that the hairdresser was overcharging you or something like that, right? That's how you learn that you can get better service. So when we talk about our day-to-day -day sexual experiences and we also talk about trauma, we gain a lot of information and I think we gain a kind of freedom. Um, yeah. So as we, um... and, and, and specifically for parenting, sorry, Tricia, mm -hmm. that I wanted to get exactly to what you said, because a lot of the time I worked with, with 13, 14, 15 year olds, the walk with parents is in understanding as um, it is normal that children are interested in sex little boys play with their penises. I noticed that everybody was saying it, it, it a while ago and girls play with their vaginas. Toddlers do this. Mm -hmm. And part of the work in sex positive parenting for toddlers and, and very small children is about teaching them appropriateness and consent and safety. You don't do these things in front of people. You don't ever let anybody other than mommy or daddy touch your genitals and and only because we are you know cleaning you or bathing you or if something is wrong if anybody ever touches you and you feel uncomfortable you tell us you tell them to stop you know and so all of those things i think are part of sex positive parenting teaching consent from early normalizing sexuality from early and also really important for sex positive parenting understanding your own sexuality, really turning inwards, digging deep and understanding how you feel about yourself and about all of the experiences that you have had across your life. And because, because those are the things that are going to allow you to be able to have open dialogue, judgment-free dialogue with your adolescents and young adults um, to the point that they will actually come back to you for help. Mm -hmm. And, um... Very good point. And just in thinking about, you know, I'm just taking points, learning and unlearning, you know, some of the things that both of you said in different ways, learning and unlearning, teaching um, both adolescents and adults. And Leslie, you mentioned, you know, teaching parents as well. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you have to teach parents come from the fact that they also come from that culture of sex shaming yeah. and, and all of that. When we look at all these things and also consent and agency marrying those principles, and I know Janice, maybe you could um, speak to that some as a mother, you know, a mother of boys, how do you, you know, balance, balance that level of, teaching you know I, I hate using the word teaching because <laughs> teaching like is all right though you know it sounds like you're giving instruction but you know nurturing that that level of um sex positivity 
understanding of sexuality and agency and consent into your kids and how, you know, you grow that into teaching adults as well. And I think that goes a, a lot into the work, Janice, you're doing with her sexual space. So maybe you could talk about how you manage as a mother instilling those sex positive um, attributes and teaching your kids about sexual agency and boundaries and how that helped the work that you're doing with her sexual space, which I'll let you talk about. If, before we before we go to Janice, though, I have a question because I think what we're doing is that we, we've, we've mentioned the word sexual agency several times, but I feel as though we haven't defined what we mean by sexual agency. And so, Janice, as you respond to Trisha, um, I'm wondering if you could um, tell me what are we talking about when we're talking about sexual agency? Yeah. So since Leslie is the one, you know, going in that direction, Leslie, can you give us just a little bit of what that means to you? Since you're doing sure. So, so sexual agency, the definition that I'm working with is an awareness and understanding of your sexual desires and your sexual interests and your sexual needs and combined with the ways you act on those things. So sexual agency can mean being aware of and choosing to engage in sexual activity of any kind, or it may mean choosing not to, choosing to remain abstinent. Um, it, it includes how you articulate your needs and desires to your partners and whether those needs and desires are about limiting sexual activity or not and anything in between. So it's entirely about the ways you know and understand awareness and understanding and the behavior. So that behavior. translates to sex positivity um, in, in my space. Um, that's, that's a term we use. So it is everything Leslie said, um, creating that awareness. And Trisha, just to go into your question. So as, as a mom of a boy, uh, my boy is 11. Um, so one of the things I did early on is creating that safe space for us to talk about these things. So talking about penis or vaginas, that I made that normal for us to do. So the first thing is normalizing it and, and creating that trust and then having the dialogues about it. So we, we talked about it. Um, when I say it, <laughs> we talked about where babies come from because, I mean, he, he saw me go through nine months because I have a two-year-old. So we, we talked about all of that with him. Um, and also I got him books. So I got him books so he can read on his own time. Um, one of the books is What's Happening to My Body. It doesn't really focus on um, sex, but there is a chapter where they talk about what's happening with your penis. And, I mean, he's been having if you want to blur that out, but he's been having erections ever since he was a baby. So it was normal um, for me to start giving him information on, you know, this is what's happening to your body. This, this is normal, you know, and we talk about it. So I check in with him, like, you know, anything new happening with your body, let's talk about it. You know, I make sure that he takes care of his body and that's probably TMI, but none of my boys are circumcised. So I have to tell them, like, you know, this is how you take care of your penis. This is how you make sure it's clean. You, you, you wash it this way. Um, so that's all part of it for me. Um, yeah, and just having him 
read on these things and I give him the books he needs. Um, I give him books about relationships and all sorts of things so he can find whatever interests him and he can he can learn that. So that's part of what I do um, with my son. <laughs> and can, may I ask, um, Janice, how old was he when you he had your second child? Nine? Yeah, he was nine. Right. So he's at an age yeah. where he can read independently and he has yeah. ideas about stuff. Oh, and yeah. yeah. I also want it because I'm also the mother of a boy um, and he is now nine and he just turned nine uh, a few weeks ago. And um, when we were traveling to and I've always had these open conversations with him when we were give, when I was giving him baths all the things that um, you both were saying about, you know, this is a penis. Um, people aren't supposed to touch you except for these few people and, and, these, and in these circumstances. Um, and so I've always made that clear to him and I've always told family members, um, you know, it is not a wiggy. It is not all of these things that we culturally call it. I want you when you're talking, a wiggy. I want you when you're talking to him about his uh, genitals that you use the correct name because I always want him to be able to communicate that name back to me, especially if it is around something traumatizing um, or assault wise. Um, and I'm getting to my point. Um, recently, when we traveled, we traveled to Jamaica. Um, he was taking a bath and he had on a towel and he said he I can't remember how it came up, but somehow it came up when we were talking and he said, no, mommy, I, um, I have I have hair down there and he's eight. And I was like, what? Oh, no. <laughs> like, it was, it was so shocking to me because I can't remember myself. I, I guess I'm maybe a late bloomer or something. Um, and he says, but daddy knows. And I said, I call my husband. I, I'm like, um, did you know? He was like, no, I don't know. I did not know. Um, um, and so for me, it was shocking as a parent even though we have I think a very open relationship my son and I we talk all the time about different things and I and he showed me um and then I don't know what to do with this information so um so even though I am fairly open with him you know we have conversations um as an, a person who's in, who may be listening to this podcast, hearing you speak theoretically, um, and even your own experience, Janice, because you do this work, like when situations like these come up uh, for lay people like me, um, and you find these things out, like you're not, I'm not responding in shock and awe to him, but then I'm hush-hushing having these conversations with my husband, like, what now? And what we're we supposed to do? And um, do we have to have, a certain conversation now about a certain thing and we are reading up on these things, but I'm, um, I'm interested to hear what might be your take, both you and Leslie um, in situations like these, because in my mind, it is, a, it is early. That's how it is. That's how it is now. I don't know. Maybe we're not thinking about it when we're that age, but yeah, that is absolutely normal. So oftentimes when I see kids and within our initial meeting with the parents, I always ask about puberty. I always, for girls and boys, because I think that plays a huge role um, in their psychological development too, because you're going through all of the surges, hormonal surges. So we start talking about mm -hmm. 
Okay, so from the point of yes, he tells you he's growing pubic hairs. Um, so ask him how you feel about it, you know? Well, the other thing is that he also doesn't like okay. you to see him. So there's this. So he so he yeah. wants the door closed and he wants to make sure he has his privacy, which is all good and which we which we allow him to have. Um, so these are all questions in my mind. Is this a sense of shame or is this normal? You know, stuff like that. It's interesting that you mentioned that hiding because I you know, it, the thought had occurred to me when you were talking one of the things that therapists do, regardless of the profession they come from, is they marry what they understand about developmental stages. And when we talk about development, we tend to talk a lot more about the, um, intellectual and maybe physiological, but, but limbs stages. And so what's happening sexually in puberty is matched by what is happening intellectually. And so as you're trying to figure out what to talk about him with, you have to keep mindful of the same way you think about how would I explain um, politics or violence or other things, the information that you exchange still has to be condensed in a, a way that is appropriate for a nine-year-old. It's also quite normal that um, signs of puberty begin to appear at nine for boys and anywhere between nine and, and boys are late. They're later than girls. So the signs will be fewer and less obvious and they will happen a little bit later than they will for girls, um, but they will happen nonetheless. And by the time you're seeing pubic hair, stuff is already happening on their insides. Um, penis growth is happening. The movement of the scrotum is happening. Things are happening that you're not you know, the testes going down is already happening. So what you're seeing as the external sign is a rash for this. I don't even want to use rash because that's the disease that's model. My baby. And this is not, yeah, well, your boy or your baby is no longer a baby. So, so I, while that is happening, intellectual and social things are happening and identity shifts are also happening because he's entering puberty. And so the, the desire to have privacy and have your own room and close the door is a part of this cognitive, emotional, and social mm. development that is happening concurrent with sexual development. Mm. And you know, so there's so so you have to do a dance. There's a bit of normalizing, limiting, uh, limit setting, giving space. You're back and forth all of the time. You're not trying to do extremes and still create safety and all of the parental boundaries that are needed. And when I said that, you know, like I enjoy working with adolescents, this thing, this tendency to close the door, it's tied to that. Adolescence is the period where we begin for better or worse to separate ourselves from our parents. Mm. And if, whether you've come from um, a trauma space, a traumatic environment or a loving and caring space, it's the moment where you start understanding yourself as a whole being separate from the people who have cared for you and raised you. Mm -hmm. And what you need from those people who've cared for you and raised you in that time is the same thing you've always needed, that you are safe and secure and sure that they are there for you and that they give you messages that, that you are worthy worthy of love and care and validation and that 
and yeah, that they validate your experiences. The same things that you have physical safety and emotional safety so that all of these biological things that will happen that you have absolutely no control over, that you cannot slow down, that they will happen, but they will happen in the safest and most empowered and, um, and positive ways possible. But Janice, does your baby ain't? No, but I don't have kids. And I'm listening to you and Janice talk. I held my breath when you mentioned it. I didn't know what he would say. Wow, <laughs> sometimes. I was going to say. I was, I'm, I'm scared on the inside. I don't even know. Like, oh my God. like how, how would I navigate that? How do I do that? And part of the fear for me is that, you know, um, I taught for so many years and teaching, I had a, I, I think I had a lot of um, I, I, sexual scares yeah. with my um, 12 to 14 age ranges in the students that I had than any, any other group. They would have time. Yeah, because they, one, like you said, um, Leslie, about the trauma experiences, and I learned to see the signs in my students. I looked mm -hmm. at them and I understood them. But then that's the time they want to explore sexually the most. Yeah. yeah. And if you're not in a household, which, you know, many a times you're not in that household, it doesn't matter if you're Black, white, you know, West Indian, American, European, there are always households where talking about sex is taboo, mm -hmm. but as an adolescent, you want to explore, you want to learn, and then you get into the scary space where you're exploring the wrong way. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I could, like, as a teacher, my heart would drop every time, you know, I had to get calls to the principal's office because one of my students was, you know, caught in any inappropriate activity on the school grounds and so mm -hmm. on. So I'm just curious, how do you, how do you balance that creating that space so that your kids are comfortable talking to you about sex and you're able to give them the information that they need that they need and also giving them the privacy that they need and when i say privacy i want them to have their privacy and i want them to be able to explore the things they need to explore on their own because sometimes you need to explore it on your own but where is where is that space where you make sure they're not doing crazy things out there in these streets? <laughs> a lot of reading yeah. and a lot of breathing. Yeah, you're so right. And I, I think a lot of it too is comprehensive sex education. You know, as we touched on it earlier, we oh, yeah. talk about and on the pregnancies, STI, sexual violence, but teaching them like, yes, there's this beautiful side of sex and you want to share it with someone that you trust and someone that you, you know, like, like you talked about, um, you know, just sexual violence earlier. And oftentimes the young girl finds a man who is so much older and, and takes advantage of her. So it's important that, you know, if you're sharing yourself, you're doing it in a situation where you feel safe and you're doing it because you probably want to explore. Um, so I think we give them what they, they need in terms of the comprehensive sex education and we trust them. And if something goes wrong, that they can come and tell us and we can correct those behaviors. Um, mm -hmm. But like you said, Leslie, it, it's a dance. It, it's a, a dance and there's no like manual mm -hmm. on it, but there's lots of books we can read. There's a lot 
that we can learn in terms of how to have the dialogue and how to create that safe space. Because once again, like you said, Leslie, those physiological needs, like that safety that I can come to you and talk to you about these things, um, you are my people, mm -hmm. um, that needs to be there because we will make yeah. mistakes. And I mean, we've mm -hmm. all probably made mistakes and then we had to you know, pull back and figure out, well, that wasn't a smart decision. Um, <laughs> so we again. cannot expect our kids to just be perfect about it, but we can create that safe space where that we can. And I, mm -hmm. sorry. I was just gonna say, yeah. And you know, yeah. like normalizing oh, yeah. masturbation. Talking to kids about time and place, what's appropriate, being safe, being hygienic, that's another thing. Just how Janice mentioned, teaching boys, particularly boys who aren't circumcised, how to wash themselves. You know, there's, there's still a culture of um, teaching young women that their vaginas are unclean and that they should douche. And that's still out there. There's still a lot of places in the world where, you know, douches are on the shelves and we think of having a menstrual cycle or, or that the vagina in general is unclean. And so educating people about hygiene and, and acceptance of, of themselves and normal bodily functions. Um, and also another thing I wanted to talk about is it is also important for us to talk to young people about how sexuality is not something to be ashamed of. What we've even outside of just talking to young people about risky behavior, until you are in your early 20s, later for boys, in maybe 20, maybe 19 to 21 for girls, maybe up to 25 for boys, the area of your brain where executive functioning, decision making happens, it doesn't fuse fully, the prefrontal cortex. So if you find that you're the parent of an adolescent, you commonly say, what were you thinking? It's because they weren't. Because the ability to rationally make decisions, they're limited in that way. And so um, as I, like I, how I said I worked in the children's court in Trinidad, um, a large part of how they fashion the court was giving this message, we have a children court because we deal with adolescent issues in this area because adolescence is a point in time where you yeah. are still not fully formed and you will make mistakes. And so we have to create every possible situation where you get multiple chances, chances to mess up, chances to explore and be safe. And so it's also important to talk to, you know, good girls, well-behaved girls and to talk to boys who we don't want to have deep-seated patriarchal views about women and their sexuality, that there's, there's nothing wrong with a Megan. That sex positivity is also not slut-shaming young women. You said a Megan? Megan the Stallion. Oh, girl, no. You know, our mm -hmm. hero. That, that, that oh, sex positivity oh. includes mm -hmm. that sex is not only the domain of married women, that people have diverse religious and spiritual views. And for some... Sex is not also not for young people only. Old people old have people sex, disabled people that. have sex. And how people have sex is absolutely none of our business. If, though, if we are neither of those parties and if we are not the primary caregiver for a vulnerable adult who can't consent or an incarcerated adult, or an impaired adult in some way, or a child, 
that it is none of our business. It is none of our business what genitals people have. It is none of our business what they do with their genitals. Once people are consenting and they are in, in, in safe circumstances, it is absolutely none of our business. And so telling that to the girls who we ignore because they're well-behaved and they don't come to our attention because they're not doing, as far as we know, the risky things is also important. Brittany Cooper talks about this in Eloquent Rage. Mm -hmm. She talks about the degree to which we've taught Black women that in order to be good girls, in order to be successful in our careers, we had to delay, um, delay sexuality, deny sexuality, and sort of suppress it. Again, it's the notion of dissemblance because, you know, political campaigns, political parties, political ideology has grown on this notion of the promiscuous black woman who's had too many, many children, the welfare queen. And so too many pregnancies and, and that the reason for this, this um, decline in society and decline in black America, and it, it happens in the Caribbean too, we castigate women who are single mothers. It's not because of all the social structures that they have put in place to keep people poor, but because of these women being Jezebels and having sex. And these are tropes. And so it's important right. to one, be aware of how we talk to kids about risk and how we monitor their risk behavior. But it is also important to talk to young people about how there is no shame in sex and sexuality or having lots of sex is not necessarily a bad thing. If you behave in agentic ways, if you treat other people with respect, and if you are making decisions that are in your interest and to your benefit. Right, and so right now I want to actually plug uh, the standpoints anthology that this podcast is um, based on, uh, particularly the work of uh, guests that we've had before, and we will continue to have Jerlyn Morell um, and her work on sex and her 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 chapter on sex work um, and how when we think about sex work, we need to think about agency as well. Um, and not just about mm-hmm. sex work as being the way that society has um, mm-hmm. constructed And I feel like, workers. you know, this is taking the conversation into the realm of empowerment, sexual empowerment, and how do we deliver, how we deliver that message. And because we're coming up on time, I want to jump into that realm because I want to give um, Janice and Leslie space to talk about the work that they're doing now to you know, create such spaces and also prepare for, you know, generational shifts and, and the future of, of um, these issues in our community. So when we speak about sexual empowerment and women, um, Janice, I want you to tell us about your work. I want you to talk about her sexual space. By the way, um, I have, I call them my kids, but they're grown now. That's, you know, when you taught them when they were 13 and now they're 20 and looking more grown than you, I, I have all of them following and stuff like that. Cause you know, I'm a lot of the kids I have, you know, they're spread wide across the, the sexual spectrum and I want them to, you know, feel empowered about who they are and feel represented and get the knowledge that they can't necessarily get from home because they're still in that, you know, old time, type of home environment where they can't speak about sex. So Janice, just tell us a little bit 
well, as much as you can about her sexual space and the work that you're doing with it and some of your affiliates? Yeah. So as you know, I've, you know, I'm a therapist. Um, and one of the things I noticed very early on, and even in my grad school program, and yes, I went to a Christian grad school, so that's expected. I was one of the very few people who would openly talk about sex and I'd write, I remember we wrote a paper about managing stress once we became, you know, therapists in the world, managing stress and burnout. And I made sure that I put in my paper that I have to prioritize sex with my husband. That's my way of relieving stress. And I discussed that with a classmate and it was like, no one else thought to put that, but I did because it's important to me. That's how, that's how I, I think about sex, like a healthy, normal part of life. So coming into therapy, I noticed that not a lot of professionals have training. Um, so a lot of times if you go to a therapist, um, even marriage and family therapists, which I think should be trained on, you know, get certified training on sexuality, they would often refer clients out to talk about that with someone else, you know? Um, so I wanted to close that gap. And that's what inspired me to pursue my training in sex therapy. So right now I'm getting training with Sexual Health Alliance. Um, and um, that has been an amazing journey. And I too had to challenge my biases. I mean, I grew up a Catholic girl, you know, first communion, confirmation, everything. And I had to challenge my own biases about sexuality and the myths about it. So I created a space. Um, it actually came to me one day while I was driving. I think it was World Orgasm Day. And I had shared a picture of my son. And then later that day, I was like, hey, World Orgasm Day. And I was like, oh my God, like, that's really tacky. So I really needed a space <laughs> for that, you know? And when I created the space, it was, it was not a professional page. I did not want to affiliate my work on anything with it. I just wanted a space where I can share these things openly and not feel like, you know, I'm just sharing it randomly in kids and family pictures, you know? So that's why I did it. But as I started thinking more about it, I was really pushed into like, I, I need to have a goal for this. I mean, People need that information. They need to know that there, there's a space they can go and someone they can ask those questions. And I always make it clear that I'm not providing therapy. It's just a general page where I'm just sharing whatever I'm thinking that day. Um, so my goal for the space is to share knowledge and to welcome diverse discussions about sexuality, relationship styles, which I think people are still not as open to. So I talk about non-monogamy. It's another area that I am getting getting certified in because I think we need to normalize that monogamy is not even the only, it's not the default. There's so many ways to have relationships. So I want to empower women in, in that area. And of course about their bodies. So I talk a lot about self-pleasure. I talk about masturbation. I talk about, you know, sex toys. Um, all of it, you know, and my, my mission favorite is, topics. <laughs> my mission is to inspire passion. And I remember too, I've gone to a few um, couples retreats and of course with the church. And we've always had a sex therapy, a uh, sex therapist, and they would always encourage you to to do certain things to keep your marriage going, you know, like sending pictures or um, being flirty, dirty talking, you know, finding things that inspire you throughout the day. And I follow some of those pages because, you know, when we're out here, we're working and we're focused on our goals. 
sometimes sex is at the bottom of the list. Like I'm not coming home and thinking, you know, yes, tonight we're going to do it. You know, we got to a point where we started scheduling sex because I'm not thinking about that every day. So I got to a place where I had to be inspired. So I follow these pages for inspiration. It could be sex positions. It could be a dialogue about sex and something I would probably want to try or talk about. So I think that it's necessary to have a space for that. And that's what I've set out to do. Um, I don't matter the age and I do monitor the age. So if I notice, because I, I am very particular about age of consent, I think you kind of talk about sex without even talking about that. So I monitor the page to see age ranges and stuff like that. And if I notice someone is underage and I get followers from all over the world, I, I, I remove them. Um, so I police it because I want it to be within a certain range and not like they don't need that information. It's that I want to be safe about how I, I go about doing it, especially as a licensed professional. So that's about the se her sexual space. And I have also teamed up with the Velvet Box. So they're based in um, DFW, but it's a company, um, it's online. So what I liked about the Velvet Box, it's a woman-owned adult store company. Um, it aligns so perfectly with my values. So immediately I reached out to her and I was like, yes, I want to partner with you. I want to talk about the classes. Um, so they provide a comprehensive sex ed class at least two or three times a month. Lots of different topics. So last week it was from purity to pleasure. This week we're going to talk about the clitoris. Um, next week it's probably going to be about um, oral sex. So I like that there is a space that people can go to for that information. Because what you find is <laughs> a lot of people subscribe to pornography. And while there is ethical porn, I, I don't go out and say pornography is wrong or anything like that. There is ethical porn created by women for women um, to learn some of these things. But I like that there is actually a class you can do. And with the pandemic, um, those classes used to be in person, but now you can jump online. It's just you and the, and the um, instructor. Um, everything is disabled. So no one is seeing you in the chat, no names on there, nothing like that. It's very anonymous and very private. So I encourage people to learn as much as you can. And those classes are just $10. And towards the end of the class, they always talk about um, sex toys that you can use to stimulate, you know, pleasure, all of those things add sensation. Um, so that's what I've been doing. And I, I really like it. And I think those classes are game changers. Trisha, I hope you are attending the classes because I'm sharing them every week. Um, anything you want to know more about, it, there's a class for it. There's a class for it. And I'm for it. That's my space. Great. <laughs> and um, thank you for that, Janice. Janice, and yes, I am following. And don't ask me my business. <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> Leslie, um, I know you're focusing your work um, mainly in the Caribbean, correct? So let's just tell us um, about your plans moving forward and the spaces you hope to create if you haven't already created some. Well, I'm kind of, on, I'm, I'm pretty much on a therapy um, hiatus right now, on a direct care hiatus. Um, how that will change in the future, I don't know. I started doing some community work um, integrating low intent trainings in low intensity mental health um, with creative stuff 
while I was in Trinidad. And I hope in the long run to continue that. So sort of a community education thing and to include in it sexual health and well-being. Um, but here, while, while I'm in graduate school, um, my focus is really on opening up a conversation and learning and you know, co-creating knowledge with Caribbean young women and girls about sexuality, how they have um, understood themselves and learned and how they develop their sexual agency. And so uh, my plan as you know, I'm near to proposing my dissertation project and the plan is to conduct interviews in Trinidad. And the interesting thing is I've talked to several friends about the topic and whenever I bring it up, pretty consistently they say, you know, nobody has ever asked me that and I've never thought of that. And so many of my friends are outside of the age category that I'm going to be interviewing, but they're certainly old enough to have thought of these things. And so I see the work that I'm doing as important in opening up a conversation, um, a multi-generational conversation on how we think about our, our whole selves, our emotional selves, and our sexual selves, and how we link what we are feeling and thinking to the sexual actions that we engage in. So that's, that's a, broad, a broad description of the work that I hope to do in the next couple of years. Yeah. I like that. And even talking with those parents, I think, and that's one of the specialties I'm going to put on my, on my, my niches, I think parents too need because they didn't have that formal education on how do we talk about sex and periods. I mean, I talked to all the, you know, my aunts and them and even period, like that was something that you didn't talk about. Like if, if it happened, it was like, yeah, you know, like you, you hide it. It was just so embarrassing almost. And I'm like, wow. So I think a lot of these parents need to know how to have those conversations and classes. Yeah. That's things I think that would be very helpful. Having classes um, a couple nights a week for parents or teenagers, or even teenagers, because you have to do that before they become teenagers. Um, yeah. So I think that too would be so empowering. Even working with churches, because oftentimes that's where they want to receive the message. Um, I think that is, there are so many places to go with this. You know, and I think for the Caribbean, I think starting with classes, um, having those seminars, having those safe spaces where they can talk about their shame and how it's impacting their parenting. Um, I think that's a really good place to start. But I well, I, I think I had a slight, a slightly different, sorry, Janice, I didn't, I think sometimes the loop means I'm behind. <laughs> I think I had a slightly different experience. My mom is a nurse and although I didn't spend my childhood with her, she sent me home to Trinidad. My, my great aunt especially, I grew up with my great aunt and my grandmother and my great aunt is like the champion of, I, I, I tell her she it was a counselor before her time. And so, you know, I think from eight, we, I had, um, are you my mother? This is, there were a couple books that explained, you know, how babies are made. And so even before I had my period, I had gotten, I, the pads were there. I'd had all the talks of, and we joke with her now that she loves to give this talk where she says, you know, your mind is saying no, but your body's saying yes. <laughs> which, which I think is so much like, which is real for adolescents sometimes. And so, but Leslie, what I think though is that um, 
because my experience was more mm-hmm. of the experience that Janice is talking about. And I think it also is a very class, Possibly. Is a, is a class thing as well. Um, because growing up in a work, a very, I grew up poor. Um, and so I think there is a way that um, I never had this conversation. I never had mm-hmm. any conversations about sex with my mother. I mean, even the man that I'm married to right now, when we started talking, um, I was scared to take him home to my mother. <laughs> and we've now been married for 16 years. Um, when I had my period, my mother just say, said, here, put this on. Um, I remember having a conversation in, guide, in class. I think it was guidance class in maybe either second or third form at high school. So I had to be about 13. Um, and they were talking about sex and my entire body was in pain. I remember a headache and I remember not being able to go to school the next day because my, my physical self reacted to that conversation in a very, in my, what I thought was a very strange way. Um, um, but I also grew up very religious. I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. And um, you were, you know, you, you're told all of these messages about sex that are not affirming. Um, and so I was not getting it from home. I was not getting it from, from religion. I was not getting it from the larger, my larger community. And so um, also as a person who at some points in my life growing up experienced sexual assault, um, you know, like these are things that, I have been able to have these conversations later on in life with my husband when we went through therapy together, um, but never really had an opportunity before that to. So I'm, I'm saying all of that to say that I think that um, is a, it, it, it can possibly be a class thing as well. Um, I think that that's one thing that we need to, to think about because I'm, I'm not saying that my mother's my mother's an amazing woman has always been an amazing mother, but she just did not have the ability to talk about those things. And I think that comes from also her own trauma, which I, I mean, I have no idea if she's had any um, assault or anything in her life mm-hmm. because you don't share those things, you know, um, I don't, so, I, you know, yeah. I think my. As I said, my grandmother and my great aunt raised me. And I think if it were up to my grandmother, that would never have happened. And I think one of my, the reason my great aunt was the way she was or is the way she is, is in response to even in her own very middle-class upbringing, never having conversations. And I, and so I think class does have, it, it is related to how, um, the topics of sex and sexuality or development and puberty, I think it is related to how it manifests itself. But I kind of also see that irrespective of class, far too many people do not talk at all, or they have this idea that we can be permissive with our boys and girls should not run the streets. And that, um, like, it's interesting to me that you see this breakdown, or I'll call it a dysfunction, because I think it is is functional to have conversations with young people about sex. I see this happen um, across class. And I know that there have been times where I've been working with um, parents who were really poor and struggled. And I have been amazed 
at the ways that they've developed a level of trust and intimacy with their children and they can talk about anything. And I've also had experiences with really poor clients where I've been appalled at the lack of communication that they're having. Um, and so I am very curious about how, um, how these conversations and the dysfunction around talking about sex shows up when we consider class but I'm not entirely sold on the idea that it's necessarily, you know, that people who are more educated are more likely to talk because I've seen a good bit of dysfunction there too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I just want to jump in. Y'all can continue your conversation, but I need to jump in and let y'all know we ran out of time 10 minutes ago. Correct? Oh, you were having okay. so much fun. Okay. Hold on. Oh. I know, right? Y'all can I know, but... We can continue talking, but let's... No, I can't continue because I have to go to policy. This has been an amazing um, conversation. I wish we um, had more time. We didn't talk about books neither, for true. We didn't talk about books and what you're listening to and reading to. But anyways. (laughs) I mean, and that's what happens. You put put prescribed questions. (laughs) Yeah, I saw saw books on the list and I was like, oh, which books am I going to suggest? But I was like, let me see what Janice has to say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because the conversation went in so many directions, which is a good thing. But we could always, you know, revisit the conversation because I feel like this is a conversation that is very rich and you can't cover Mm. a lot of it just in, you know, one hour of discourse. Yeah, well, Janice, it was so nice to meet you. I hope that our paths cross um, in person. (laughs) Maybe you could put Janice on your syllabus. I, I can consider yes, it. Yes, Janice, would you, would you be interested <laughs> in guest lecturing like. for a class? I teach a class on um, love and um, agency using Audre Lorde's work on the that. erotic and the uses of the erotic well, as if power. If you even have an undergraduate class next semester, do you? I ain't doing an undergraduate class next semester trying to get this tenure, girl. <laughs> but, well, don't worry, Janice. We'll, we'll, figure, we'll figure it out. We'll should just remind me as I'm putting the syllabus together remind me to reach out to Janice because I think um I think the whole thing about um culture of dissemblance and the erotic and how we need to engage the erotic not only um outside of sex but also talking about sex would would um and I pay so um it obviously obviously it's not going to be any big money um (laughs) it's going to be only like a few hundred dollars (laughs) But I do pay for your time. All right, y'all. I gotta go. Okay, be safe. Have fun. We recorded our conversation with Janice Leonard and Leslie Tony on October twenty third, twenty twenty. Thanks so much to our guests, and thank you for listening. To learn more about our podcast and stay up to date with us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Standpoints Pod and on Twitter at Standpoints Pod One. Standpoints is produced in association with Virginia Tech Publishing. Our producer is Joe Fort and our production assistant is Jenea Amore. For more information about podcasts produced by Virginia Tech Publishing, please visit publishing.vt.edu and choose podcasts from the drop-down menu. Our theme music was arranged by Prince Predator with vocals by Aura Cadet. I'm Andrea Baldwin. Please join us again 
on the Standpoints Podcast.